Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Greetings and thanks for joining us today on A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room podcast editor here at the U.S. Army War College. So the U.S. Army War College is part of a pretty extensive network of schools and institutions charged with a mandate for professional military education, or PME. And PME is a pretty evergreen topic of discussion within the Department of Defense and in various national security forums, uh, including on War Room. And these questions are about what should we teach? Who should do the teaching? What should the student body look like? What's the appropriate balance between military topics and academic pursuits? Uh, And these are long and important uh, and spirited conversations. And so today's podcast is going to add to that discussion. And I'm joined in the studio today by Colonel Celestino Perez, who is an Army strategist and a professor in the Department of National Security and Strategy. He also holds a PhD in political theory from Indiana University. So Tino, thanks for joining me today here on The War Room. Thank you very much, Jackie. All right, so I'm going to start with a question, and it has a little bit of an ulterior motive. So Tino, how long have you been in the Army? Well, I've been in the Army since I was commissioned in 1992 from West Point. All right. So in your Army career, how long have you spent uh, in a schoolhouse that is either as a student or a teacher? Wow. That's a good question. Without adding up the years. like on <laughs> Math the in public is really It's terrible. going to be, uh, I spent uh, several years teaching at Fort Leavenworth uh, and also a, a year t- uh, as a student there. Um, and then taught at West Point for three years, which isn't necessarily PME. And then uh, at the uh, War College, I've been teaching here for about a year and a half, and I was a student here. I would say probably seven or eight. And you did a PhD in there. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, two years of uh, coursework and then several years uh, trying to finish up a dissertation. So there's um, seven or eight years uh, okay. really wrapped up in education and probably more. And probably more. Probably if more. We I'm, I'm it, underestimating that. If we counted all of that. So... In terms of an Army career, that seems like an unusually high amount of time spent um, in school or teaching. And so I assume that this has been partly by choice. Um, Tell us a little bit about why you've spent so much of your Army career in educational environments. Uh, I I knew that when I was a, uh, a sophomore at West Point, I was taking a course in political theory from uh, a captain or major dister a long time ago. And I knew from that moment on uh, that I wanted to go and uh, study politics um, in some capacity uh, after uh, graduating West Point. And so the opportunity arose to be able to teach at at West Point. And I was able to see that there are real strong connections between uh, what scholars are doing uh, and what uh, soldiers are required to do. Soldiers understood broadly uh, to include all the services, mm-hmm. what we're into- uh, uh, supposed to do uh, on a battlefield. And and uh, these connections were not readily made either in the scholarly world or really even at West Point when I was teaching there. So making the connection between scholarship and the practice of the the profession of arms has been critical. Yeah, because sometimes I think we, we want to think of these as sort of separate realms or separate domains, that there are there are things that concern military professionals, and there are things that concern academics, 
Um, and finding that crossover is sometimes really difficult. So can you give us maybe a couple of examples of where you see that crossover happening? Oh, uh, the most startling example uh, came uh, when I returned from uh, uh, Iraq uh, as part of the surge. So that was uh, 2008, and it's been 50 months there. I was uh, finishing up my dissertation uh, from Indiana at the time, and my dissertation was on a normative topic. It was on the theme of religion and, and politics. So I was comparing a, an atheist, uh, a non-believing thinker, Jürgen Habermas, a prominent uh, public intellectual and philosopher from Germany, and uh, Karol Wojtyla, or Pope John Paul II, who is obviously a religious believer. And I was comparing their works in several different ways. My exposure to international relations theory and, uh, and comparative politics as it relates to civil war, civil wars and interstate wars was pretty minimal in Indiana. When I returned, I stumbled upon this symposium that uh, Perspectives on Politics held on FM 3-24, where it had several notable scholars uh, commenting in friendly but critical ways about the underlying premises of, of the uh, doctrinal manual, which was later published with the University of Chicago. Well, they right? like hit print on it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a success, so we'll, we'll take it up. It's not, it's not copyrighted. So. But one of the participants was Stathis uh, Kalivas, who at the time uh, was at Yale, and I, I would consider him the dean of Civil War scholarship. I think many of his students are all over the place uh, doing granular work in Civil Wars. And the things that I started to look up um, in, in his corpus were things as far back as 2003. Remember, I deployed in 2007. 2003, the ontology of war, uh, um, or the ontology of political violence, the article, that described exactly the kinds of challenges that, that my soldiers and I faced in Iraq. And these challenges were nowhere discussed in the train-up to the war, mm -hmm. and, and even in the intellectual preparation for the war at Fort Leavenworth, uh, even in FM 3-24. And so I said, well, what more is here? And there's much, much scholarship. on. And you start sort of peeling back this onion and, it, and you just keep, you keep going. I, I went to JSTOR and I think I filled up two binders <laughs> worth of Civil War scholarship because that was the thing that we were concerned right. about at the time. Afghanistan was We were finally calling that right. <laughs> a, a Civil War, I think. Um, so if we think about this relationship between theory and practice, between scholarship and practice, I know this is something that is... It's important and it's it's personal for you too. So here at the Army War College, uh, we talk a lot about strategy. We use the word strategy all the time. Um, we both work in the Department of National Security and Strategy. We have the School of Strategic Land Power. Our course is called the Theory of War and Strategy. Um, I joke that our students play strategic softball, right? Um, of course. So yeah. how does this, I guess, it's mission too strong a word, but this purpose that you have to think about the relationship between scholarship and the profession of arms, um, how does that help us think about the question of strategy in particular? I think the definition of strategy that we use here at the War College, which I think is the, the nuts and bolts of us are com common across uh, several different institutions, but is this idea of, of thinking in terms of ends, ways, and means accounting for risk. And, and really, this is something that we know as instrumental reason, the, uh, trying to reason to achieve a certain aim, uh, given what you have. I think all these definitions work, and I'm not really caught up on creating a new definition of what strategy is. I am interested in what strategy entails. 
Uh, but one weakness of the way that we, we've used strategy uh, here at the War College, I think also uh, operational art and tactics at Fort Leavenworth is we neglect the environment. So the, the, I argue that understanding the environment, uh, there's a primacy to that. And before you understand uh, or before you attempt to, to, to align ends, ways, and means, you have to devote a, a solid amount of energy <laughs> to describing the environment in some way that's, that's, that's provisional. But, but that's a necessary uh, work. So if we, in, if we describe the environment and we, like you said, the ends, ways, means construct isn't, isn't useless, right? It, it, has its, it has particular utility in how we think about and articulate um, what a strategy is and, and what, what a strategic actor is trying to accomplish. How does that inform your teaching here at the War College? Well, l- l- let me describe a pathology that I see routinely. I saw it both at Leavenworth and I see it here. And my colleague, Dr. Uh, Megan Hennessy, and I are actually involved in a study where we're trying to you know, justify this observation or prove it in some compelling way or disprove it you know, as necessary. What we see when we give students an actual problem to deal with, say, you know, how should we proceed in Syria? Or how should we proceed uh, vis-a-vis Russia in Europe? The first thing that students do is they look at the highest level strategic guidance that exists. Mm-hmm. They'll look at the national security strategy and then they'll work their way down. Very seldom, and I haven't seen it here at the War College at all, is there an attempt to actually go to the problem area geographically and try to decipher the various complexities, uh, complexities social, political, institutional, ethical that are in play in a rigorous way. And the only way you do this is by consulting experts, whether those are practitioners, say a diplomat who's worked the area for a long time, uh, whether it's uh, uh, scholars who have regional expertise or, or some sort of uh, um, uh, other expertise that can help them peel back uh, what's going on there, or, or, and especially local stakeholders, people who are involved in the conflict. We, our students aren't accustomed to doing that research, engaging in perspective taking mm-hmm. to inform. Why I have I have some hypotheses about why that might be, and I think my sense is that it it has to do with the idea that political guidance at end states are set by actors external to the military, and so that someone someone else, a political master, civilian master, will give the military its sort of end states, and then for the army especially, it becomes like a backward planning exercise, right? How do we how do we get with it, with end states defined or objectives defined, um, what do we have at our disposal? What levers do we have to pull in order to to affect that? Um, does that comport with sort of your diagnosis? Oh, absolutely. I think that that especially at this level of, edu- of education here at the War College, the presumption is that we can simply take the political aims that are given to us from on high, and then we fill out the rest of it, the military component of whatever comprehensive mm-hmm. intervention the, the U.S. M, is. as the it M. were. Uh, but there's always latitude into h- how we specify our military objectives and how we employ our, our, our various means uh, to accomplish our, our aims. So you can imagine this easily by replacing one imaginary commander with another. And the next commander would have a totally different set of priorities and ways of thinking about the intervention, even within a comprehensive uh, um, um, 
intervention while we're talking about diplomatic means and economic means and others. And so uh, there's always latitude and we're not thinking through exactly how that, how much latitude is actually there. So instead of of that sort of tendency to start with ends and then work work back and to, like you said to start with very high level ends from the national security strategy and then national defense strategy and sort of nested on down um where would you recommend that students and practitioners and strategists then start you i think the environment sounds like thing number one so right now uh so my Discipline is political science. That's my academic discipline. And, and, it's okay. Uh, we can be friends anyway. We can still be friends. <laughs> and we need to be uh, because I think that the, the three departments here have people with expertise in various disciplines. And all of these relate, and perhaps more that aren't represented here, uh, relate to the, the practice of strategy and war. But uh, I, I think that political science has more than simply the three IR theories that we talk about, you know, constructivism and liberalism and realism. Uh, it actually has tools to help us think about causal claims. How is the world working? Or if we take this action, why might this this cause or, or bring about or help bring about a, another outcome? Uh, it also, uh, political science and, and it also helps us think through normative questions. What is the right thing to do here? whether in terms of the smart thing to do, but also the ethical thing to do. And ethics at the U.S. Army War College is something we're really not peeling back um, uh, here. Uh, there's very little voice for military ethics in our curriculum, uh, apart from an hour or two of instruction. So my mantra is that strategy is performance, and we need to, as often as possible, put students in a situation in the face of an intractable, intractable problem and attempt to st- establish what the, what the aim should be given the guidance, right? Uh, what interventions might work or might not work or what can we try experimentally given the makeup of the environment? And, that's and why point. those and, and why certain things might have certain effects or why certain things might work in one context but, but not another. So really making explicit those causal stories uh, the, the the levers that you're that you're pulling and what what effect um, because at some level you you do need strategy to be instrumental right you're trying to make it do something and you're trying to achieve effects and if you don't know what effects those might achieve then you might be um, in for a long a long war I suppose and we see that right we see that playing out today in several places yeah we'll just we'll just try yeah. something yeah. else and so your your argument is that scholarship from a variety of disciplines, but particularly from political science, help um, can help strategists understand causal claims and causal mechanisms that might affect things in the in the real world. Right, and can I give an example here? Please. Jack? Uh, so, Jackie, I ask you, and, and I'm hoping there's educators uh, out there who are listening. When when you ask your students to to tackle a, a problem, and you give them the space and time to do that, right? Um, Invariably, what you're likely to see is an end state or a desired end, a desired aim that looks something like a stable and secure X, whether we're talking about an interstate war with a near-peer competitor or an intervention in a civil war, a stable and secure country X or region X. And then you'll have these lines that are drawn uh, pointing to this uh, desired end or, or end state. The causal links 
of how these arrows work together mm -hmm. and how these arrows actually effect change in the landscape or the obstacle course that we're negotiating is almost never uh, specified. And these are the, the uh, causal assumptions that we need to interrogate as military professionals as, and as national security professionals, and we're not doing it. So how do we, as educators in a PME environment, um, how can we how can we do this in classrooms with real students who come to us with a really huge variety of educational backgrounds, of operational uh, experience, um, and even from from different countries and different different perspectives? Right, and that that's the trick, right? So, do you need the same level of education for all of the students? Or are some students going to be attuned to these issues more readily than others? Uh, I think that instruction in causal logics, in, in evaluating normative claims, is appropriate for all students. And it's the teachers and the institution's job to identify those who have a special talent for it and then put them in a situation where they're able to exert that. Because what we need for for our senior military leaders, especially at the a flag officer rank, is, is are people who can engage in this sort of thinking. Uh, we don't want them thinking as tacticians when they're working as, as generals, even in a three-star command, for instance. Right, so we need to train military strategic thinkers who can participate in these broader national strategic conversations who can have a seat at the table and who can who can hold their own and influence maybe the the conversation as well. So if you were going to, and you, I know you talked about the um, the sort of the pilot and the programs that you've been doing with Dr. Hennessy as well. What are some of the the ways that you envision helping students practice this? Because one of the nice things about the schoolhouse is that we have ten months. It's it's low low risk in many ways, right? Yes. Um, we're not practicing in, in the real world, even if we use real world scenarios. So what might, um, what might practice in the schoolhouse look like for this? So uh, right now, the standard model or the standard experience for the student, nine-tenths of the year would be uh, the Socratic dialogue or really a facilitated dialogue, dialogue led by the, by the uh, teacher um, based on readings that the students performed, uh, uh, did the night before. And they'll have a light uh, three-hour conversation about the various themes in the readings. And then they go home, they rinse and repeat, and they, they do it again. Uh, this doesn't really exercise critical thinking, right? This is, uh, let's have a conversation that could be entertaining, it could be shocking, it could be jarring, but not to the extent of actually engaging in problem solving where the students have to roll up their sleeves and, and over a sustained period of time tackle something. So what I'd like to see is not eliminate the, the discussion from the classroom. That's necessary, and much of what we do still requires that sort of delivery. So we're not talking about getting rid of reading. Right? No, like, of course not. We, <laughs> uh, yeah, and we can address this uh, critique of something I wrote in War on the Rocks uh, as well. But uh, we need to shift a lot of our time towards actual practice. And so you can go to Congressional Research Service, for instance, uh, the CRS publications, the stuff that congresspersons and their staffers are reading about Yemen, about Syria, about Russia, about China. And you can start with that, uh, that publication, and then branch out from there to try to get as many different complementary 
and especially competing perspectives on what's going on with these different problem sets. Have the students read different things and then bring them together and using whiteboards, I'm a big fan of whiteboards, whiteboards in the classroom attempt to graphically describe these competing and complementary perspectives in a way that we can then understand the environment and based on that, recommend aims uh, and, uh, and specific interventions with what we have. So these are problems that are then underpinned by the readings and the discussions of scholarly work, of regional experts, of local voices, um, rather than just sort of reading about a problem and then talking, Absolutely. talking about it. Um, what has been, what's been the most successful thing that you've, you've seen uh, in, a, in a classroom that sort of employs this approach? How would you know if, if, if it's working, I guess? Wow. Um, so the most successful employment of this approach was at Fort Leavenworth, uh, where I was able, I was given the freedom by the leadership to start a scholars program there. Uh, there was one already there uh, that was based on history, right? And then I introduced one based on uh, political science, but really all the disciplines, uh, or as many disciplines. And here I was able to handpick the students, which, which is a treat, right? Uh, because you know that they want to be in the classroom and they want to have a, cer- a certain experience. But we, I was able to give them, uh, after their core instruction of three months, which they took with you know, their homerooms, uh, they came to me for the remaining time. And I gave them tools to break open uh, the environment right, uh, various tools. And then after about two months of that instruction, I unleashed them on two things, both their papers and then a series of exercises. And we met uh, for the latter part of that only two times a week. Now, the students were in the library, uh, and my colleagues would tell me, you, hey, I saw your students you know, in the, in the cubicles up there in, in, the, in the library with the SAMS, with the, SAMS the students from the School of uh, Advanced Military uh, uh, Studies. Like, uh, studies, yeah. <laughs> and they were all there together every day, uh, despite being in class twice a day. But what this meant is they had time for reflection. And then when they came to class, they were actually able to dig into a problem uh, with depth and, and comprehensiveness in a way that they would be required to do once they graduated. And it, that was really successful. These students, uh, one of them is showing up here in the next class for the Army War College, and uh, they've had great success out there. Good. So, Tino, um We'll sort of wrap up this conversation, but I think this gets us to a lot of the current questions that are happening in PME, right? What's the right balance, um, like I said at the beginning, between theory and practice? What's the right balance? What do military professionals need to know? What do we mean by strategy and strategic thinking? And I think you've given us one way to envision um, teaching strategy that is underpinned clearly by research and scholarship, by curiosity, right, as a, as a sort of driving, driving feature of this, uh, and at the same time giving students um, real-world sort of practice and with knotty problems, right? Syria and Yemen and Russia and all of these are extraordinarily complex and are going to require good, good thinking, um, going forward. So I'll let you have the, the last word if there's anything uh, maybe you want to leave our, our listeners with today. No, the final thing, I guess, uh, and this is based on some critiques that I've heard of, of some of the essays that I put out there, but this distinction between training and ed- education, 
is something that is like an article of faith out there, like the nature, uh, mm-hmm. the character of war, <laughs> uh, which we've talked about. Uh, but uh, this distinction between training, training and education, I would like people to think about maybe softening it. Uh, this morning I was uh, re-watching uh, YouTube videos of a scholar on uh, China, and she described her, quote, training in education uh, in, in grad school for a PhD and her training as a military reserve officer. <laughs> and, and I know that when my colleagues at Indiana talked about their training in the political science conferences, uh, scholars talk about their training. Right, and disciplinary training. Right. You're trained to think in, in certain ways and to do certain things in order to achieve yeah. results. And the same people who are fans of this distinction, like hard fans of this, uh, or fans of this hard distinction, are also fans of, seems to be, uh, critical thinking skills. And skills are something that have to be trained, like any other uh, performance that, that's worthwhile. So what are we trying to achieve in the classroom? We're not just trying to give the students a liberal arts education where they go out as good citizens, but we are here at a school for national security practitioners, that is, people who are going to practice in the national security realm. And the things that we give them have to, have to be related in some way, whether indirectly or directly, to the performance of the alignment of ends, mm-hmm. ways, and means, risk, given an intractable so that PME isn't just a place where we talk about strategy or about national security or about leadership, um, but we give students the opportunity to practice them um, with expert facilitators, with support, with a library, right, you know, down the stairs or down the hall, um, and all the things that they need to do so that when they go out into the real world, um, they can they can do it, right? So this is like layup drills. Exactly, Jackie. Yes. All right. So with that, we'll close out today. This is Jackie Witt for The War Room. Thank you very much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.